a lot of these things were things that I couldn't attain or didn't want to attain. And I didn't want to feel, and I didn't want anyone else to feel like they were only of value if they were the first this or the first that. I think who we are innately is extraordinary and that we are to be celebrated. And I wanted to create a platform to celebrate the everyday woman. Hey, I'm Nadine and welcome back to season two of In Her Lens. In this weekly series, I interview today's women in film about their journeys, their careers, and their crafts. This week, I am talking with Geneva Peshka. Geneva is a Brooklyn-based documentary filmmaker from Canada, and over her career, she's brought her love and intrigue for authentic storytelling to projects in the documentary, commercial, and animation world. Her groundbreaking film, Unspoken, follows the life of 14-year-old Emma Zuegler Long as she challenges societal judgment surrounding autism. The film is transforming the way society views autism by challenging viewers to address their own biases and exercise more acceptance in the process. Geneva remotely directed the Adobe X Complex When I See Myself collaborative series and the Audible X Complex campaign. Her most recent project, Women, is a collaborative short documentary series designed to amplify the voices of extraordinary everyday women, with the second season focusing specifically on the stories of black women. So in this episode, Geneva and I take a deep dive into talking about the community that built her and the colorful teenage years that shaped her into who she is today. She talks about her mission to share and manifest more joy, to uplift, and to create real visibility. We honor the power of community, and Geneva talks about the pursuit for self-advocacy on all sides of her work. She shares about the magnificent Emma and how their collaboration created Unspoken. Finally, we chat about her documentary series and podcast series, Women, and Geneva's journey to greater self-love through it. Creating real energetic waves, I am very grateful that Geneva and I ended up on a call together. So here is Geneva Peshka on In Her Lens. We're going to do a little rapid fire question round. Uh, Are you in for it? I absolutely am, and thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Dawn or dusk? Dawn. Tea or coffee? Tea. Wine or beer? Depends on the beer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love both. Uh, To be honest, I do love a really good red wine. Um, My favorite is Prisoner, but I can't turn down a good IPA. Very, very good. <laughs> I'm, I'm in on that. Uh, travel to space or the bottom of the ocean? That's a hard one. I know. <laughs> both, they both seem so magical. I think space. I'd want to be close to the stars. Favorite subject in school? Art. A subject that you wish they taught you in school? Finance. <laughs> so true. I have so much to say about this. Uh, board game or card game? Board game. Appetizer or dessert? Appetizer. Mm, a three-hour movie or a 10-hour series? 10-hour series. The last thing that you read? The last thing that I read. I'm thinking of physical books. I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks lately. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most recent, actually, I just need to get the title. I'm going to please do. I'm lying because it's not finished yet, but I'm reading The Secret of Shambhala by James Redfield, who wrote The Celestial Prophecy. Mm-hmm. I really liked, I really liked his, you know, his, the Celestial Prophets prophecy and someone, um, 
I went to a healer some years ago and she told me that I needed to read this book. So mm -hmm. I just kind of expanded. I didn't know that he had written other books that are part of the series and I've been reading them and it's been a really nice escape, but also a great reminder of human connection. Um, beach or mountains? Mountains. The last thing that you photographed? Probably a healthy meal that I made. <laughs> I've been eating mainly plant-based mm -hmm. for a while. Um, and really, you know, during quarantine, teaching myself to cook and really nurture my body mm -hmm. and love myself through that. So I have to say plant-based meals are very, very pretty uh, in photographs, I have to say, because there's so many beautiful colors in nature that we forget about. A go-to karaoke song. I love rock and roll. Phone calendar or a physical calendar? Physical calendar. A movie you can quote start to finish. I don't know about start to finish, but I have watched super bad an obscene <laughs> amount of times. Um, and I will just, you know, say a lot of the things out of nowhere and sometimes at very inappropriate times. Perfect. <laughs> um, fall or spring? Tough because I actually love every single season, I would say equally. Mm -hmm. But I think because we're in spring, I'm really looking forward to spring. If you could have only one cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? This is a really hard one. Why? <laughs> I love food so much. I'm, obs I'm obsessed with just eating. Um, and I like when I'm eating breakfast, I'm already thinking about like lunch, dinner and the next day. Um, I love Mexican. I love tacos. Mm -hmm. so I think that would probably that's be a, That's probably mine as well, actually. Okay. So some really good gems in there as well. But let's talk about you a little bit. You are from beautiful Canada and you're currently living in Brooklyn. Uh, what did your childhood look like? How did you grow up? It's a great question. And it's a big question. I was born and raised in Canada. My mom is first generation Canadian, made in Germany, born in Canada. Um, I have very strong German roots because my mom was a single parent mm -hmm. and my father's American. Um, He's Black American, a little bit of Lenape and European, quite, you know, a mix as my mom has a mix as well. And I grew up, my mom was kind of a, I wouldn't say like a wild child. I wouldn't say that. I think she was very radical. I, some people would say, I don't think so. I think she was just really beautifully outspoken and really stood for human rights for all. And that really rubbed off on me and was something that was part of my childhood. And um, she was a single parent already. I have an older brother named Eric. He is half Italian. My mom wanted us, I guess, to essentially be the Rainbow Coalition. I have a younger brother who is half Antiguan. So my mom was very much all about that Justine Baker. Um, <laughs> life, you know, bringing people together. She you know, grew up in this, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, very much a hippie um, and really believed in the power of love. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was instilled in me from a very young age. I think there was a lot of love in my life. She created this incredible community to support me. Mm -hmm. I had this group of phenomenal women who were like activists in their own rights and all from different walks of life. And because of that, I had access to all different walks of life and all different experiences. 
and I never really felt alone. Mm. I always felt adored, celebrated, and loved. And I think even growing up without my birth father in my life, I had so many supportive figures that were very instrumental in who I am today. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, like, it really, it really does take a village. Yeah. Yeah. My birthday just recently went by and happy belated birthday. <laughs> and I was trying to think of a way to see everybody and kind of thank everybody and was able to do that virtually. And it was so overwhelming because it is not a celebration of me. It's like, everybody that is there and everyone that has been a part of your path has helped to get you to where you are today. Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful for the childhood that I had. It sounds like kind of like rosy and amazing, but it was filled with a lot of, you know, also a lot of trauma, you know, a lot of um, uncertainty and, you know, financially we didn't have any money. Um, You know, my father wasn't in my life because my father was a heroin addict Mm -hmm. and I'm really um, happy that my mom made that decision and also really happy that he respected, you know, kind of stepping back until it was time and he's in my life now and Mm -hmm. I have a great relationship with him. So kudos Mm -hmm. to them for making that great decision. But, you know, I grew up in the arts. Uh, My mom at a very young age supported and fostered my my interest in the arts so at like I think age seven I was in like private art classes I went to an art elementary school in Montreal um you know and then when I was 13 years old we moved to Ottawa mm-hmm. and that was a very transitional difficult time for me I was not happy <laughs> it's a very difficult age to move at I, I have moved a lot uh, around in my life and I also moved around the age of 12 13 so I can imagine there there's a lot that happens just in a body at that age and especially for for young women let me let me be seen but let me damn sure make sure that I'm heard mm-hmm. and I really made sure that my mom knew I wasn't happy So Mm -hmm. my teenage years were really interesting because I rebelled. I got kicked out of, I went to art school for a little bit, um, got kicked out of art school was, you know, it was the nineties. I was a raver. Yeah. I worked, (laughs) I worked coach tech at an underground hip hop club. I'm a a huge like old school hip hop head. And, um, yeah, so I had a very colorful childhood and also teenage. Yeah, my teenage years were also very colorful. And mm-hmm. one thing I have to say is my mom really respected my journey. Mm. And, you know, she called me out, of course, when she needed to. I was partying a lot. You know, I've got the, there's addiction in my family, my dad's side. My mom also did a lot of experimenting and partying and then changed her life, I think, well, probably when I was around like, you know, 10, 11, or 12. And then she went back to school to become a counselor for people in addiction and, Um, does a lot of outreach for people living on the street, um, HIV and AIDS community, and also in the the indigenous community. So she's very, very much somebody who supports people. And I think because of that, she really supported my journey and didn't judge me. I had to go through what I went through. Yeah. That really widened my lens even more. Mm -hmm. I did have, I didn't mention this, but I'll, I'll share, you know, it was hard for a long time, because my grandparents at first were not very excited, um, you know, about me. I was, 
they're, you know, um, very much in the, in the German community and their mindset was, was around what they had been taught. Mm -hmm. And, um, my grandmother didn't talk to my mom, I think for a while after I was born, my grandfather called, uh, when my mom was in the hospital to see how we were. And I ended up becoming my grandfather's, you know, the light of his life. And we became very close, but I think, you know, I I say this quite often. I think I was his lesson and he taught me so much as well, Mm -hmm. but I learned from them. I learned, um, also being in spaces, you know, when they'd have like their big, their big German picnics, they had a farm and they would host the German club picnics and stuff, you know, me being the only person of color, Mm -hmm. yeah, being the only, you know, like non Aryan looking person, you know, I was like the only black child there and navigating that world. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a really interesting part of my childhood, but it also created the space for me to um, really understand the importance of seeing people for who they are, the beauty of all of us and our diversity and all of our stories and how they should be celebrated and that our stories can really open each other's minds, right? And we can expand from that. Yeah, and what you were saying about um, you being your grandfather's lesson and how, and then relating that back to, to stories and how different stories intersect and become something new and and now doing that as a career and sharing the stories that you do share um, is a huge gift to be giving people. Um, where do you think your love for visual storytelling specifically came from? Um, so I think my, my love for visual storytelling is a combination of things. I think growing up and experiencing the art you know, world as I did and also being being exposed to so many um, issues, you know, that affect humanity in in different communities. I really fell in love with the idea of visual storytelling because I felt, for me anyways, when I see a story, when I see, um, when I'm connecting with a person and and like getting that feeling, so if the two of us are connecting and and you're sharing your story with me and it's moving and it's emotional, it's like, how can I, reenact that or like how can how can that how can we work together mm-hmm. to share that and bring it to other people and I always think that right we all learn differently but there's um the component of it being visual or audio is is really transformative if something is you know on text for me anyways it's um like the way I I digest information is my own way of digesting information mm-hmm. I am reading is very, has always been very challenging for me. I experience ADD and dyslexia. So things take a lot longer for me to understand or digest and it being visual, I get it right away. And it really just affects me emotionally on a higher, higher level. It is a really interesting form that we as humanity have developed that does touch upon so many things of people working together of sound and of visuals and of emotion and um, very often does feel like um, a calling in that sense. Did you, what did your education kind of look like coming out of 
uh, high school and what was your most kind of challenging part of going out of academia into the big wild working world? <laughs> I've always been someone that questioned academia, mm-hmm. to be fully honest. Um, I've questioned, I'm someone that questions everything. Uh, and the, you know, what is it you're supposed to do? Why is it you're supposed to do this? Who says you're supposed to do this? And I don't think it was, I don't know if I say I was like, you know, rebelling, but it was, I never really wanted anyone to tell me what my path was going to look like. It had to be something that I created and that felt right for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my high school years, I was kind of like touched on a little earlier were were colorful. <laughs> love that word. <laughs> I had so much fun, mm-hmm. you know, and I would never take back getting kicked out of school grade 10. I don't recommend it for everybody, <laughs> but for what I needed to learn at that time and experience, it was extremely important and got kicked out of grade 10, had to go back to school. You know, I had to basically do a bunch of classes over. So when my peers were graduating high school, I still had credits that I had to do. And at the end of high school, when everyone was finished, I was working full time. Mm -hmm. I was working full time, part time and going to adult high school to finish my high school diploma. And after that decided I wanted to go to college for television broadcasting and production. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be an on air talent. There's this network in Canada called Much Music. And I really wanted to be a Much Music VJ. But it was more so it was like, which is also really funny because I'm a very shy person and I hate being in front of the camera. So it was about challenging myself, but it was, I wanted to talk about hip hop. Mm. (laughs) So I was like, I was like, I know so much about it. I should be on this. And then um, I didn't get into the full-time program. I got into the part-time program because it was really, really popular. And in that learned that I love the behind the scenes. Mm. I love concepts. I love producing, executive producing, and started to fall in love with it. And it's funny because I was applying for, to get into the full-time program. And I asked my teacher and I was like, should I apply and do the two-year program or should I move to Toronto and just get into the industry, finish the two-year program? You're going to start off the bottom. If you move there now, you're going to start off the bottom, do the math. So I'm learn by doing. (laughs) Yeah. So I ended up moving to Toronto and SARS had just broken broken out mm-hmm. and there were no production jobs. So I was working <laughs> I was working at a hotel. But in working at a hotel, I ended up getting my first full-time job in production in feature animation as an executive assistant to the directors and the producers. And that was so rewarding and so fulfilling because it brought back that like love of art and in that experience, I worked for that company for two years. I ended up creating an animated series, which I started pitching to networks soon after I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. And that was, it really solidified like, oh, okay, I can, I am an artist. I can create. The opportunity came for me to really be terrified. Um, I was in a, a long-term relationship. I had made the decision to leave it into an expand to expand myself and really create a healthy environment for myself. And one of the things I promised myself in doing that was what is it you're the most scared of? And the biggest and scariest thing was moving to New York city. Mm -hmm. So 
I moved to New York City and then got a job as a casting associate for a high-end casting director and then started managing a production office for five years and did various roles while I worked there. And my path wasn't academic at all. It was all surrounded by experience and, you know, saying yes to the experiences that came my way, even if they weren't necessarily roles that thought were going to take me to where I wanted to be. Now that I look back, every single experience was invaluable. I've learned so much from all of them. Because, you know, people talk about, you know, the survival job and the uh, making it through and paying the bills and navigating that is an extremely difficult thing, especially if you're also trying to keep the passion and the fire and uh, for the art, um, keep that love alive and trying to create no matter what. It's this really interesting balance. So it's really cool to see how you've navigated that and the different jobs that you that you have held and working in production and working as an executive uh, assistant in animation, which to me is such an interesting world anyway, because there is all of this possibility and space. Um, tell us a bit about the project that you uh, were working on in animation or are working on still. Well, it's, it's, it is. I love what you just said about animation is just so expansive and you can create any world you want to and tell any story you really want to. And one thing that was really important to me was, and is in general, is creating visibility. I, growing up as a, as a you know, as a young black girl, you know, with like an, a, you know, of a mixed background, mm -hmm. I didn't see any characters on TV that reflected who I was, you know, and I was a kid of the eighties and and that was challenging. And I think for me, I just wanted to create something that would let other kids and other people know that our voices are important and that we belong and our stories matter. So I created an animated series called Libby. Mm -hmm. The full name is Liberty Lumberty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's, she's very, I don't know if I even say loosely, but she's very much... Um, modeled after me mm. and the difference is, is that she lives in Brooklyn in a brownstone I was definitely not fortunate enough to live in a brownstone growing <laughs> up <laughs> and she lives with you know both the, both of her parents and again you know I was, I was in a, a one-parent home mm -hmm. so a lot of it is kind of like the experiences I would have loved to have had but it's very much rooted in the exploration of of community and who you are as a person, not necessarily your identity. And I think that that's something I just like really want to normalize us just being who we are. Mm -hmm. You know, I started, I started pitching the series. I moved here 11 years ago. I think I probably started pitching it nine years ago and it was hard for people to make a move on it. Um, there weren't any shows there weren't any shows that um, animated shows that really reflected those types of families and characters. And I, you know, I have my personal feelings as to like, I don't think, I don't think people were ready. I don't think, and I say people, I mean networks to be fully honest. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that is just so beautiful and exciting is now like, you know, seeing all of these shows that are, you know, coming on air that are being developed that reflect our societies and humanity and diversity. If, if we're just seeing one story all the time, we're all losing out. 
you know, it's, 100%, I think, yeah, yeah. These opportunities for us to like all expand, to like vibrate higher, there to be more joy, you know, like how can we uplift each other? Let's share each other's stories and learn and grow from each other. So I'm still pitching mm-hmm. Libby. Sometimes you have these, those projects that might not get made. And that's something I have put so much time into the series. And, you know, of course I'd be heartbroken if it didn't, if it didn't get, you know, developed and, and made into a, a series. Cause it's not about me. It's really wanting that visibility for little black and brown children and all children really. What Libby did teach me was the importance of having an idea and moving forward with it and executing it. I'm crossing all my fingers and toes that uh, that Libby gets made and finds its right home and that it gets made the right the right way because that's also a whole other part of that. You were you touched a little bit uh, on the importance of community and um, how like what impact has that had on you personally and professionally and kind of the concept of it and how have you carried that into your work? I love this question. <laughs> I love this question. Thank you. Um, you know, growing up, I was, I was raised by community mm-hmm. and that has just been so instilled in who I am as a person. And I am a huge people lover. I love meeting different people and getting to know them and, and really seeing them and celebrating them. And one of the things I love about, you know, community and building community, I've, I've been a community builder as a full-time job before in the past is the, um, you know, from that was like the opportunity of bringing different people together so that we can create space to see how alike we are and how, when we collaborate the beauty and the magic that comes from that and collaboration is, is who I like is, is all I love to do. You know, all my work is, is collaborative and creating community through film has been one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Everything that I've done has only been possible because of community. Right? We're, we're stronger. There's that saying, you know, we're stronger together. It's mm-hmm. like, I, you can't, you know, nobody can see me right now, but it's just, I'm mm-hmm. smiling so much and I feel it inside, you know, especially now just thinking about the importance of community. So many of us are alone. Mm-hmm. really, really understanding the importance of community and family and friends. Yeah. And the way that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this as well, especially doing this podcast and and meeting the people that I have through it. And also just looking at how social media has grown in the past year or how my relation to it, relationship to it has changed because my community is now living online. Right. And how do you touch people without being in the same space without being able to touch people and how do we touch each other and that the community is that it's it's the touching of energies right and 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 feeding each other onwards and it doesn't necessarily have to be physical and the work film does that it is built by community and it's always for community different communities all the communities and uh the impact of of such touches like it's invaluable it's you can't even describe it because it's it's something that is at the core of humanity 
you know, from way back when we lived with our families in our communities. And that still is a thing. We're just becoming more interconnected, but it's all just being highlighted even further, even through a crisis like this, how important it is to keep touching people in whatever way you can. So beautifully said, you know, we, we really need each other. We all need each other. I mean, I think that this is the perfect transition to talk about Unspoken because it's truly an astonishing short doc. I, it really fundamentally affected me, I have to say. Uh, will you tell us a little bit, in your words, uh, who the film follows and was co-created by? The film follows um, 14-year-old Emma Zercher Long, an autistic teenager, as she challenges societal's judgment surrounding autism. And that is part of the tagline, of course, but Emma co-directed the film and Emma had final sign off. And that was something that was really important for me and also very important for her. Mm -hmm. I've known Emma, I met Emma the day after I moved to New York. I became her, um, I became her babysitter, her summer babysitter, you know? So school was out, her parents needed some, you know, part-time babysitting help. And I didn't know New York City. And I was, you know, in this like life transition from like being in a long-term relationship, you know, leaving that, leaving my identity of who I was and coming to New York and being like, I'm going to, you know, go after my dream. And, um, and then I met this beautiful, beautiful young girl and her family who became a second family to me. And Emma was, I think, eight at the time and um, didn't have a lot of verbal speech. And I got to really get to know her. They, like I said, they became my second family. Emma is like my little sister and her brother, Nick, is like my little brother. And um, a few years down the line after that, probably when she's about 11 years old, she started communicating through a stencil board and spelling. And then non-facilitated on a keyboard and and spelling and what her parents had learned is that she had taught herself how to read and write but couldn't verbalize it and that she was a poetic genius and i mean truly a genius right a beautiful word choices her home is one that's filled with um so much stimulation mm -hmm. visually but you know like her parents uh were older when they had her and her brother they have this beautiful, whenever I'm around them, I'm just like, oh, when I grow up, I want to, you know, I'm, a, I'm definitely an adult, but you know, I'm like, when I grow up, I want to be like them, or I want to have these types of really respectful relationships with my children in the way I speak to them. And they would speak to Emma um, the same way they would speak to Nick, right? Even though she verbally wasn't um, responding in the same way Nick was. And I think being able to experience this and see this and then also for myself being a woman and then being, you know, uh, you know, having all these other categories placed upon me, um, and experiencing so much judgment throughout my life. It really just, I always have been like, if I'm going to tell my story, the only way it makes sense is for me to tell my story you know, if someone else tells my story, they've added their lens to it or their assumptions and the importance of self-advocacy, um, you know, is something I deeply believe in. And I've learned so much more about it through Emma and this process. And, you know, when she started 
you know, typing to communicate. She started advocating for human rights across North America because she didn't want any other child to be dismissed the way she had been dismissed. And it really just brought up this like, this like thought of like how much we've been taught to judge each other. Mm-hmm. You know, she was in a school that was like one of the best schools for autism and was being taught the same curriculum. Like, you know, they're like planting, uh, planting seeds to, to plant, you know, I don't remember what it was, but you know, they were like planting seeds and watching things grow. And she was 11 or 12. And here she is, you know, studying Shakespeare and German and all these other things. But because we seem to think that the only type of communication that matters is spoken language, mm-hmm. you know, she was getting this label of, of being less than, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous, you know? So, you know, you, you've seen it and it's just like, there are so many different forms of communicating mm-hmm. and it's, you know, we have to really think about that and it's definitely not just spoken. Yeah. It's completely reframing as, as we are living in a world with so many systems in place that were once decided by someone or something. Um, it is really an uprooting uh, when you ex- get to experience or spend time with a person like Emma um, of the things that, our quote that we call normal and that we call that is what is acceptable. That's what we're taught. That's how we live. Um, There are so many different ways of so many different languages, whether and not even the just a language of, of words. Right. And I feel like the film really exposes that. Yeah. Thank you. It's um, it goes, it goes back to like my feeling, you know, just like somebody got like, I got to collaborate with Emma on this, I think just as a whole, we're experiencing, um, and we have for the last, you know, four plus hundred years, narratives being controlled by one part of, you know, of the world, mm-hmm. and ha- and there and that gaze, and just how damaging it is if if that narrative is controlled by one, you know, one group of people. Mm-hmm. Everything is it's just it goes back to the importance of why we need collaboration. Mm-hmm. We need to be collaborating on everything. We need to be like talking about, um, you know, the different ways people learn, the different ways people communicate, the different ways. Um, there's just, there's just, we are doing ourselves a disservice by not collaborating and communicating with one another. At the end of the day, we are all, we are all going to win by, by celebrating each other. Like no resistance. I learned so much from Emma in this process and it was not an easy process because it was the first time I was making a film and I chose to do one in a collaborative fashion, but it was the most important thing for me because it was important for her to tell her story on her terms. And she was a part of, um, you know, she, she laid out what she wanted to share, what she wanted the world to know. She wanted the world to know that there was nothing to pity about her, that she's a very joyous, happy, beautiful human being that loves life and we should really be questioning you know what we think life is and she wanted to show also that it hasn't always been hard there's a lot of archival footage that we showed we showed as well the process of making the film was it took longer than I thought you know raising money trying to get people to even see it you know we started the film in oh my god what was it um can't even remember now it's like 2014 15 the film came out in festivals 2017, I think, and it's still not fully out. Mm-hmm. I, there's like things that I'm like learning, you know, 
different licensing and stuff like that. But the film is available in schools across North America, which is something that was so important for us because we want this film and it will be out actually fairly soon. We wanted this film to help change the narrative surrounding autism, disability and self-advocacy. You know, we're approaching autism acceptance month and who should be owning that narrative? It's the community. We're really excited that the film is available in schools and it's helping to open people's minds, the kids. Um, I always, you know, think kids are obviously a lot more open anyways, but really the teachers, the educators, the people that are creating the curriculums, Mm -hmm. will Emma's story help them look at things differently and expand on how they educate? And that's the hope is like, how can we open your mind and your heart with Emma's story. There's a really cool balance of, of archival footage and footage shot by your DP, Julia, and recordings from different um, autism conferences like I Care for Autism and Tash. How did you build the film visually and like what elements were really important to Emma and to Julia and to you to uh, include? Well, I think authenticity was really important for Emma and I can't completely speak on her behalf and Julia's behalf, of course, but some of the things that have been mentioned in the past is, you know, Emma's story being told authentically. And I think, I think we collaborated and did a really good job with that, with it, A, being a personal story that we're all personally connected, you know, with me being connected to Emma and Julia being a good friend of mine and me being connected to Julia, there was so much love in that. I originally, when Emma started advocating across North America, I, I approached, I knew I wanted to make a film with Emma. I knew that her story could change the way people looked at each other. And um, I wanted her to co-direct it because I, you know, I, I knew what it was like for other people to control my narrative. And Emma came on, she signed on for that. And Julia came on board and we all collaborated together. And that was what was really important in, you know, that was the main focus. There was no, it wasn't, it wasn't ego based in any way, shape or form. It was very much a movement of like towards love and how can we create change and create an opportunity for people to see each other. And so Emma's voice was the most important and what she wanted in the film, what she didn't want in the film, you know, that went down to like the, you know, Emma loves music. So that mm-hmm. went down to like the music, um, you know, even like when we were doing post-production and Emma was in sound and Emma was in color, you know, you got to keep in mind, A, this is a teenager who's never made a film before. And again, Emma's never made a film before and she's calling out color notes that nobody else is seeing. Wow. You know, it's just like me, she's just such a phenomenal human being. So really, it was just about like, always constantly finding that balance and really listening to each other and also being honest and the same thing, you know, with like Julia as well. Um, I think it was great collaborating with her because she was coming on the project kind of like outside of that existing relationship that I already had with Emma and was able to bring a different perspective, right? Where I am such an emotionally heavy person. I'm a Pisces. I'm very much (laughs) Pisces. And, you know, we all balanced each other out. And that's what it came, it came out to was us wanting to make something really phenomenal. I think I'm also going to throw in Connor McBride. Connor McBride is the editor of the film. Mm-hmm. We had anyone out there who's a filmmaker or, you know, or, or just like an artist in general, if you're in a situation where you're collaborating with people, if something doesn't feel right, never feel like you have to move forward in that direction. Mm-hmm. We initially had a bigger editor attached to the project. And in full transparency, 
it didn't fit and it didn't feel right. And the cut that was delivered was not the essence of what we were going for. And there was, you know, there was a lot going on there and we had to move away from that because at the end of the day, this is Emma's story and the way that she's being portrayed and for it to be portrayed in a loving, respectful way. Sometimes people also aren't aligned and that's fine. And it's not, you know, not, you know, maliciously or anything like that. It's making sure that your community and the collaborators are all in that same vibration as you. We started working with Connor McBride, who I'd known, who worked at the production company on again, off again, that I worked at as an editor and commercial editor, but he's also a phenomenal documentary editor. And he, in two weeks, had two different cuts for us. The one that he put together and then the one that like we thought was the vision mm-hmm. and, and, and what he brought was the film. Wow. You know, I praise him so much because he's such a beautiful human being, but he saw Emma mm-hmm. and he celebrated her and mm-hmm. we're so lucky. It is com- what you were saying about self-advocacy is like fighting for that, keeping on that. And when you meet the people that are on your vibration and when you are building together, that's where the magic is. I do want to quote one of uh, Emma's most stor- stirring uh, words of her film because, I mean, they capture so much types showing kindness towards those who are different and embracing our imperfections as proof of our humanness is the remedy for fear and i just want to like sit with that for a second in those 25 minutes i learned so much and you've touched a little bit on what you've learned but what are what is one of the biggest things that you learned from making unspoken it's so interesting it's like it's it's still in my daily life as I'm working right now with Connor and someone else to like finally get it out into the world for the world to see. Um, it's so personal. It's my ode to Emma that I'm forever grateful for her expanding me the way that she did and those around her and for continuing to have an open, beautiful heart. I learned so much during this, during this film. And it was like, you know, there's a lot of personal things that are, I learned my capabilities. I learned to keep going when people don't believe in you and people say no or, oh, you're going to let a 12-year-old autistic girl co-direct a film and give her final sign-off. That sounds really risky. I don't think it sounds risky. I think it sounds respectful and it sounds about right. And there are a lot of things that we missed out on in terms of possibly like really people taking a look at the film and understanding it. And again, I do think the film was ahead of its time. You know, now we're starting to see more the last, like, I think year, year and a half, we're starting to see more projects like that. And that's so beautiful and just so exciting that the world is moving in this direction. But this making this film is one of the most profound things I've done in my life. Like living, I really live my life through service and really wanting to show up for others the way people have shown up for me. My life could have been drastically different. And I had so many advocates in my life. Mm-hmm. Unspe- so Unspoken is streaming on Canopy, uh, and it, but more widely available is your docuseries Women, a 12-part short doc series and a podcast. And now also there's season two, which had a little bit longer episodes. Um, Speaking of listening and being with people and letting people tell their own story, 
Uh, where did this idea come from? Well, I think it's, it goes back to being very much rooted in wanting to be seen and heard. And I really just want to celebrate everybody. You know, if I could have a platform to make a story about everybody in the world, that would be my goal. But in 2015, early 2016, I was seeing a lot of stories, a lot of great series and stories that were highlighting women. And a lot of them were, you know, the first woman to do this, the first woman to do that. Didn't feel inclusive in the sense that a lot of these things were things that I couldn't attain or didn't want to attain. And I didn't want to feel, and I didn't want anyone else to feel like they were only of value if they were the first this or the first that. I think who we are innately is extraordinary and that we are to be celebrated. And I wanted to create a platform to celebrate the everyday woman mm -hmm. and the, you know, in diverse, in, sorry, in diversity. And I decided to make the series and I wanted diverse women from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different, um, you know, ages, everything. I wanted to collaborate with other women to make this. So mm -hmm. I, you know, as a community, going back to community, we made this. Mm -hmm. It was a community that helped make a vision come true for me, but also who helped expand and create this vision. I worked with Samantha Panger, who uh, was the DP for the full series and also directed a, a piece and edited a piece and is also an executive producer. Amanda Madden, who edited six of them, you know, like the list goes on. If you look at the credits, everybody had their hand in the series. And I think one of the things that was really important is that I wanted to celebrate the women in front of the camera, but I also wanted to celebrate the women behind the camera and also create opportunities for people to direct as well. You know, my good friend, Kelly Teacher, came on, she directed a couple of the pieces. Ushi, who's featured, Kelly actually inter interviewed her. I thought Ushi would be an amazing director and Ushi had never directed before and, and ended up directing Shay. So it was very much kind of like, how can we collectively work together to empower each other and to celebrate each other and to feel full? That's such a beautiful concoction of, of, starting something and having it be supported and then support it being in support whilst supporting and all the elements that kind of are constantly intersecting that's so exciting and you feel that when you're watching it right i think that that is one of the biggest things i think in your work in general is the intention that you have with it it's ingrained in in the in the shots that you choose and the words that you use and the uh, questions that you ask is it's in the DNA of the work, which I think is really exciting. Thank you. Season two specifically highlights Black women. Tell us about that. So I knew I wanted to expand the women's series. I had, you know, the documentary series, the pieces are three to five minutes each. And I also wanted to be inclusive with, you know, how people could experience the series. So created a podcast. So it's all audio and it's quite a different experience when you're listening to audio versus video. Right. And that also brings up like our judgment and how we think of things. And if you listen to the audio first and then you go back and like, look at the season, if you're drawn to someone's story, you'll listen or watch that story, but then you're prompted to watch or listen to someone else's story. Who's not necessarily somebody who you think 
you'd be connected to, but it's an opportunity for you to find that connection and for you to see that we really are a lot more similar than we are different. One of the things I wanted to do with season two was I really wanted to celebrate Black women and Black women's voices. And I took the same intention, you know, being very intentional with the series of making sure and wanting it to be very diverse and inclusive in that sense. And um, what I really wanted, though, that was different was that the length of the episodes wasn't going to be determined, right, by me. It was going to be determined by the conversation. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't going to be 30 minutes or, you know, it was like some of them are 25 minutes, some of them are 45 minutes, some of them are over an hour. It's funny that you're actually bringing this up. There's nine episodes that are out and I still have three that are in my back pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's reasons for that, which is really interesting because this is such everything I think, well, everything I do is deeply personal, right? So unspoken, Emma and her family are like my second family. Um, The women series, a lot of these women are people that I know or know through friends or this series is around the identity of being a black woman. And that speaks, you know, very true to me in my exploration of, of what that looks like. And it's heavy. It's um, really sitting down and taking in these stories. It's such an unbelievable honor to have people open up the way they do and for people to feel safe and know that they're respected and loved and to share the things that they do. And that has been, I think, really overwhelming for me. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot about myself. I've always, you know, I've, I think as I've gotten older, I've really learned to like love myself more. But this just added on an additional layer of my self-love of being a Black woman, not even knowing that I needed it. You know, my experience, my journey of being a Black woman really came more so when I moved to New York, you know, in the time, in the place where I grew up in Montreal as a child anyways. I was allowed to be Neva. And I know that that is not something a lot of people are, you know, experience, but it was like that time, that moment, the people in my life, you know, my school, everything that was unique to me that I was allowed to just be myself. Mm -hmm. And moving to New York is when I really deepened my understanding um, and my celebration of being a black woman. And this season two, has just been such a beautiful gift. And I, you know, I I said, I've got these three other episodes um, that I'm holding on to that I really just need to release, which hopefully by the time this airs, I've released the three and that's season two. Yeah. But it's been, it's, um, I think one of the things I've had to sit with for myself is thinking of like, all I want to do is celebrate our voices. And giving that to people who are looking for that as well. Because there aren't a lot of spaces like that, unfortunately. And the ones that are sometimes very hard to find and not always as accessible as as they should be. And, you know, what you were saying about finding your purpose and what and finding your purpose through this art and then finding a way to make it even more widely available, having it not just be visual, but having it be auditory as well. And it also being an exploration and celebration for yourself. All of that energy carries forth. 
And it's really interesting to see the kind of people that, um, the kind of women that are on there and, and um, listening. And, and I think it's probably one of the greatest traits and skills and muscles that we as artists, but honestly, just we as human beings um, can build is listening and, uh, and really hearing people. It's all in our hands and you're really powerful for ma making that um, space for people. Thank you. I think I've had um, a lifetime of training figuring out what that space looks like and what would be welcoming and what has been welcoming for me and how I can create that for other people. If we move resistance, if we remove resistance, I'm always like talking about energy and um, expanding energy. And I really think, you know, like we're meant to connect, exchange, expand, move on, connect, exchange, expand. And as you keep doing that and meeting different people, you expand and your energy expands and you vibrate higher. And what I find so powerful is also the, the way that you've edited it and letting it just be their voices and doesn't matter what the length is and allowing for that space to exist wholly and just like with Emma on the person's terms. It's such a powerful thing right now in the world to do anyway, to have that full agency over um, yourself and your story. And that's really exciting element uh, of the type of work that you do. Thank you for watching my work and listening to my work and um, truly thrilling work. And what was for you the biggest difference between doing something visually and doing something uh, with only uh, audio? I'm a very visual person, but I'm also, you know, very like emotionally rooted and like sound affects me greatly. Like if I go into a restaurant or back in the day when you could, you know, <laughs> and if the space has music, uh, that is, you know, a little abrasive. I, I can't, I can't dine there. I, I think what was challenging was, um, was creating a space for me to only, I guess, like only concentrate on audio storytelling. Um, visual for me anyways, is, is easier because I love looking at people mm -hmm. and seeing into their daily life and into their, you know, those ele those visual elements of their stories, which also can in some way be a distraction, right? But they add to their story. But when you have to sit and listen and edit just the audio of an interview, it's a different part of my mind that I wasn't used to. And I, I don't edit and I'll put that out there. I'm great at ideation and directing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Those are the things I really love to do. I don't edit my shorts, like films. And that's more so because I love collaboration. My editor is going to see something completely different than I will. There was something so personal about making season two and having to sit with myself and having to sit with these women, just no distractions, just me and them. Not running away from a challenge of doing something that I haven't done before, right? Like editing, audio editing was is new to me. It's super exciting and 100% everyone should listen to it. It's streaming online. Um, so one last question before we wrap up. Arguably everything that we are goes back to our childhood. And um, if you could look at your younger self, uh, let's make her, I don't know, nine years old. What would you say? Such a good question. Your light is not meant to be dimmed. Shine it as bright as you can in every single space you walk in. Don't be afraid of it. 
thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It truly, truly was a pleasure. And all the works that we talked about will be linked in the show notes as well as links to your work. Um, so thank you. And I look forward to listening to the last three episodes of Women and how it will continue to grow. Um, what's up next for you? Are you wor- you're working on a, f- a feature length doc? So I have a feature that I've had in, in pre-production for way too long <laughs> to be fully transparent. Um, and that goes back to, you know, having that full-time hustle and creating on the side. But the last year has been a great opportunity for me to create. I'm currently working right now on a short piece that I don't know if I can like say very much about, but it'll be a short piece. It's for an organization and that has been a really beautiful and expansive experience. And it, it is around women and, um, some of their experiences. You're going to see more of that in the future and, um, any way that I can create space for, you know, more voices, more diverse voices to be, to be heard, to be seen, to be celebrated. That's where I will be. That's where you'll find me. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. My deepest gratitude to Geneva for joining me and you can check out all of her work linked in this episode's show notes. I also want to give a shout out to John James and Rebellious PR for making this conversation happen. I'll be back next week with another brilliant guest. So hit that subscribe button to not miss it. Let's get all the algorithms to work for us and get these conversations to more people and more communities. So thank you again for joining me and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.